Father, Lord, we thank you for all your grace, your goodness. And Lord, we just ask, Lord, that you would come, that you would speak this morning. Lord, we know that, Lord, if it's not by your spirit, we can receive nothing of eternal value. And so we humbly come before you this morning, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would open our hearts, you would open our eyes. Oh God, Lord, that your anointing will come and truly, Lord, you will be uplifted and you will be glorified. Lord, we ask it in your precious name. Amen. Right, well, we're continuing on on our subject or overall theme of preparation for revival. And the focus this morning is going to be revival and worship. Revival and worship. And as we've seen, you know, there's many ways to prepare for revival. We've spoken of revival and repentance. We've spoken of, uh, you know, revival and and uh, revival and repentance, revival in the Word of God, uh, many different aspects. And as we seek to prepare for revival, you know, worship is a, is a very important key. And the familiar scripture in John's Gospel, chapter 4, you know, the Father, he seeks worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. John 4, 23 and 24. So true worship, it creates an atmosphere where the presence of the Lord comes and his power and his glory is revealed. Now I want to look for a little at the, at the revival in the time of Hezekiah. And he's one of the, uh, he's one of the most godly of the Kings of Judah, um, there are some many wonderful things about his life, and God used Hezekiah to bring a mighty revival in Judah, and God gave this righteous king a, a great victory over Sennacherib. Sennacherib was the, he was the king of Assyria, and his forces had come to Jerusalem, they surrounded Jerusalem. There were about 100, 185,000 soldiers there, and they were just, just about ready to completely you know, take over and wipe out Jerusalem. And then Hezekiah, he cried out to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord. Hezekiah, he trusted in the Lord. And Hezekiah is known for his trust in the Lord. And as he trusted in the Lord, God worked for him. As he trusted in the Lord, God helped him. And God just sent one angel. One angel of the Lord came, and just during that night, the one angel took care of 185,000 of, of the Assyrian army, and they were all dead in the next morning. And God wonderfully helped Hezekiah. He, he saw a remarkable uh, revival, and, and the nation celebrated the Passover, and the nation you know, turned back to God again. But we see that central to Hezekiah's revival was a strong emphasis on praise 
and on worship. And in 2 Chronicles, chapter 29, 2 Chronicles and chapter 29, and beginning at verse 25. And he set the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals and psalteries and with harps, according to the commandment of David and of Gad the king's seer. So the Levites from the, from the tribe of Levi, that was their duty as far as the singing and the music. And so they had cymbals and they had psalteries, harps, and the harps they had. And uh, it was according to the commandment of Nathan the prophet and of Gad the king's seer. And so it was, it was, it was very important, even, even the prophet, prophet Nathan and the prophet Gad uh, were setting it in place. And the Levites, verse 26, and the Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. So the priests were there. The priests were also from the tribe of Levi. They were, you know, a higher rank. And the priests, they were there with the trumpets, to blow the trumpets. And Hezekiah commanded to offer the burnt offering upon the altar. When the burnt offering began, then the song of the Lord began. The song of the Lord. And often when the, you know, in, in, in meetings at times where the presence of the Lord is strong, and the song of the Lord, it's, a, it's an inspired song which the Holy Spirit gives. And, you know, it just releases the, 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 the presence of God in a, in a wonderful way. And so the song of the Lord began. And it began, you know, accompanied by the, the trumpets and all the different musical instruments ordained by David, who was the king of Israel. And then in verse 28, it says, All the congregation, like the whole congregation, they worshipped, and the singers sang, and the trumpeters, and the trumpeters sounded, and... And it says, all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. So that could have been quite a com com considerable period of time, maybe a number of hours it took, it, it, it took. And then verse 29, And when they had made an end of offering, the king and all that were present with him, they bowed themselves, you know, they bowed down, and they worshipped the Lord, a bowing down to the Lord, a worshipping the Lord. And then Hezekiah the king and the princes commanded the Levites. They were to sing praise unto the Lord with the words of David. And of Asaph, he was the, he was the seer. He was the, and he was, he was over, uh, over a lot of the music. And they sang praises with gladness and bowed their heads and they worshipped. They bowed their heads and worshipped. And so all the people there, there was just that, that tremendous atmosphere of worship. The presence of God was there. Hezekiah's revival, it brought forth. It brought forth praise. It brought forth worship. It brought forth the song of the Lord. And that song of the Lord, you know, we need to pray that the song of the Lord will be will be manifested here more. And basically, it's an inspired song, you know, given by the Holy Spirit 
during worship. I mean, God gives the word. Just by inspiration, that song comes. And often where there is a song of the Lord, it can, it can lift the congregation. It can lift us up just to a new realm, to new heights in God. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse, Hebrews 2 and verse 12, speaking of Jesus and speaking prophetically, it says, in the midst of the church, in the midst of the church, in the midst of the congregation, will I sing praise unto you. And speaking about Jesus, singing praise unto his heavenly Father. And he says, in the midst of the, midst of the church, I will sing praise unto you. And, you know, that burnt offering, we see, it continued, as I mentioned, it continued a long time, and a long time. It wasn't just sort of all over in five minutes. No, that worship, that pure worship, uh, you know, went up into the presence of God. It went up unto the Lord, and it continued, and it continued, and it continued on. It continued a long time until the whole of the burnt offering uh, was finished. And often where there's been, in certain revivals, um, there's been a strong emphasis, you know, on praise and on worship. And in the Welsh revival, which was back in 1904 to 1906, you know, in some, in some meetings, the Spirit of God would just come on a, on a song, or would come on a hymn, and they'd sing the anointing would be there. And they'd sing it one hymn. They'd sing it over and over and over. Sometimes they would sing, sing it just like one verse of a hymn. And they sing it going over and over and over for about a couple of hours. And it was just the, the Lord came down. The presence of God was there. And thousands of people. And they would you know, sing spontaneously. And people would, in the, in the presence of God, people fell down before God. You know, some would cry for mercy. Others were healed. Others were delivered. And sometimes, you know, those meetings and the singing and the praise and the worship would go on until, you know, 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, early hours. And people sometimes were lying in the aisles. And, you know, God was coming down and visiting person after person after person. But in that, in that revival in Wales, you know, sing, singing was, was a very central part uh, and, and praise and worship to the Lord, a very central part in that revival. In New Zealand, way back in the 1970s, and again, you know, a key element, a key element of the, the, the move of the Holy Spirit there. And, you know, many came to the Lord, but, you know, a key element of that, that revival, that move, move of God was praise and worship. And sometimes, you know, I can still remember it just, just so vividly, even though it was many years ago. Sometimes, you know, we'd be, we'd be worshipping the Lord and just singing in, in the Spirit, singing in tongues. And then it was sort of, it would like it would rise and rise and it would come to a crescendo. And, and then it would sort of fall off a bit. And, and then it would rise again and come to another crescendo. And just, just the, the presence of God was, was just electric. And... You know, God's presence came. And, and there were times when people were just in their seats. Nobody prayed for them. Nobody touched them. Nobody laid hands. They were just in their, in their seats worshipping. And the presence of God came and people were, were healed of sicknesses and just wonderfully, wonderfully touched 
by the Lord. And at that time, you know, the, a lot of scripture and song. God gave many songs or, or gave tunes to, to scripture. And scripture and song, songs tape. They went tapes. They went out, you know, from New Zealand, you know, all over the world, many different nations. And so, you know, worship, I believe, is, is going to be one of the keys, you know, in the last day revival, in this coming revival we are, we are, we are looking to the Lord for. And, you know, God, I believe, he wants to purify our worship and take our worship to new levels, take our worship to new heights. And uh, it's coming. It is coming. And pray. You know, we should pray. Pray for, you know, pray for our music director, Sister Catherine. Pray for our worship leaders. Pray for our musicians. Pray for our singers. Pray, pray for those working on projection and sound desks, that everything flows together, you know, by the Spirit of God. There's a, there's a beautiful description of worship in the, in the New Testament and in Luke's Gospel and chapter 7. And the word worship is not even mentioned there, but I think it's one of the most vivid descriptions in, in, in the whole of the New Testament, you know, on worship, on worship. And that's in Luke 7 and beginning in verse 36. And it's where Jesus was anointed by a sinner, by a, by a, you know, a, a sinner woman. And in this passage, there's just such a beautiful description of worship. And as I say, even though the, the word worship is not used. Now, worship is an intimate expression of love. Our whole being directed to the Lord in worship and adoration and veneration. Our whole being, our, 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 our spirit, our soul, our mind, our emotions, our, our strength, uh, you know, being presented, being offered unto the Lord. And really... True worship, it's an it's a intimate expression, you know, of our love. Garpe love, you know, going uh, out to the Lord, expression of love. And one of the words which is most often used for worship in the New Testament, it's a, it's a Greek word, proskunio, proskunio. And... That Greek word, proskunio, is made up of two words, pros and then kunio. Pros means towards, and kunio means to kiss. And so the word proskunio, there's a thought there, the meaning of that is to fall down towards, to bow down, to fall down towards, and to kiss, and to kiss. And... This woman, this woman, this sinner woman, you know, she did proscunio. And, you know, there was a release of, of great emotion. And in verse 36, And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he sat down to meet. So Jesus was invited to a, a wealthy man's house. He was a Pharisee. He was a uh, 
He was a, he was a Pharisee. It was a Pharisee's house. And, you know, Jesus, in the same chapter earlier, earlier on, it says Jesus was a friend of publicans and sinners. But he, was also, he also realized that those who are rich or those who are well-to-do, they also, they also needed, needed the gospel. And so when Jesus was invited, he went to, this, to Simon's house. He was a Pharisee, and he sat down to a meal with him. And then, verse 37, And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat, when he was eating there in the Pharisee's house, she bought this alabaster box of ointment. And this woman probably in the past had been, been a prostitute in the city, but her life had been obviously radically changed by the Lord. And she bought, she came to where Jesus was and she'd bought this alabaster box of ointment. This alabaster box possibly was worth about, you know, 300 pence, which was a, a, a lot of money, a huge amount of money, because for, for a pence, or a, one, one penny, or a, 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 the Greek word is denarius, it was about the, the working, man, working man's wages for one day. And so... If, if, if it costs, say, 300, 300 pennies, that's, you know, nearly a year's wages. So it's a, it's a huge expense. It's a huge sacrifice for this woman. And she bought this precious alabaster box of anointment. I mean, you know, nothing was good enough, uh, you know, but, but for, for, for the Lord. And then this woman, verse 38, and she stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And so often the custom in that day is you would recline when you're eating. There'd be a low table and you'd be sort of maybe sitting on a, a low seat or on the floor and you'd be sort of eating like that. And then your feet were behind. Your feet were behind you. And this woman, so she, she came behind Jesus. She came in. Uh, normally she, a woman would not have come at all, but it's just, I mean, she was, she was bold, um, but she just wanted to express her thanks, her love, her adoration to the Lord. And she stood at the feet of Jesus, and his, which his feet would have been coming out, coming out and she just, she just wept and wept. Those, those tears, of, tears of joy, tears of thankfulness, tears of gratitude. And she was weeping and weeping. And with those tears, when those tears dropped down, they went on to the feet of Jesus. And, and then with her, you know, normally a woman would, would have her hair in place, but she let all her hair out. And, and then she went backwards and forwards with her hair, you know, on, over the feet of Jesus to wipe, his, her, to wipe the tears away. And she wiped those tears away with the hairs of her head. You know, possibly there was quite a, you know, it was quite wet down there because, you know, she'd, she'd, you know, she'd had a release of great emotion and tears. She wiped his feet with the hairs of her head. And not, not only did she do that, then she kissed his feet. She kissed them and she anointed them with this very, very expensive and costly ointment. 
and the fragrance of that would have just gone forth in such a, such a, such a precious way. Normally, normally a, a bride would break a box of alabaster ointment you know, on her wedding night. It was something you know, very, very precious, very costly, very special. And here's this woman, here's this woman, at the feet of Jesus, weeping, washing his feet with her tears, wiping them with her hairs, and then kissing her, and it said she kissed her feet. She kissed his feet. In the, in the original Greek, Greek it's, it's the thought of continuous. You know, she kissed his feet repeatedly. She went, you know, many kisses on, on his feet. You know, she, she, was, she was just lost in the Lord. She forgot, every, she forgot everybody else but Jesus, and she, she truly worshipped here, and she truly worshipped him. You know, there was, nothing, there was nothing in what she was doing which was impure in any way. There was nothing sensuous in any way in her actions, but there had been true repentance. There was true repentance from her heart, from a sinful lifestyle. You know, she now hated that sin, she now was willing to turn from it. She now wanted to forsake it completely. And her willingness to give herself totally, totally to follow the Lord. And so even though the word worship is not mentioned, she did proscunio. You know, she worshipped the Lord in the beauty. Psalm 29 verse 2 says to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And... That was an expression. It was an expression of true worship. And then Simon, the Pharisee, who invited Jesus for the meal, he'd been watching all this. And he's thinking in his mind. And he's thinking in his mind, you know, this, this man, if he were a prophet, he would have known that this woman was a sinner. And so Jesus knew what Simon was thinking. And so Jesus said to Simon, Simon, I have somewhat to say to you. And he said, Master, you know, say on, speak on. And then he, then he gave a parable. And it's the parable of the creditor. And it was a, 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 an, a, an, a parable Jesus gave so that, you know, S Simon would see you know, the comparison between what he had done and what the woman had done. And he said there was a certain creditor which had two debtors. You know, one owed 500 pence, 500 denarii. The other owed 50. And neither of them were able to pay. And the creditor, he forgave both of them. And they were both forgiven. And so Jesus said to Simon, tell me therefore... Which one of those two debtors, which one of them will love him the most, will love the creditor the most? And then Simon answered the question of Jesus, and he said, I suppose the one who he forgave the most. That was the guy who was forgiven 500 pennies. He will love the most. And then Jesus replied, and Jesus said, yes, that is correct. You have rightly judged. And then Jesus turned to the woman and he said to and he said unto Simon, Simon, see this woman. 
And he said, same, verse 44, I entered into your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but this woman, she has washed my feet with tears and she's wiped them with the hairs of her head. And then he continues to Simon. He said, Simon, you gave me no kiss. And often it was the custom to give a, a kiss on the cheek, uh, you know, when someone was, was visiting. But then Jesus said, this woman, since the time I came in, has not, has not ceased to kiss my feet. And then Jesus again said to Simon, verse 46, my head with oil, you did not anoint and often when a visitor was arriving, sometimes the, 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 guest would, uh, the guest would be anointed by the host on the head. My head with oil, thou didst not anoint. But this woman, she's anointed my feet with a special fragrant oil or ointment from this alabaster box. And so Jesus says to him, Wherefore I say unto you, unto you her sins, which are many, her sins, which are great, they are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. The same loves little. Simon was just concerned with outward things. He was concerned with outward holiness. He was self-righteous. He thought he was okay. He had no, no appreciation whatsoever of what true worship was. You know, Simon, really Simon, even though he was very wealthy, he was very rude to Jesus in that sense. I mean, he gave, you know, he did not give water so, so that Jesus' could feet, feet could be washed, which was the custom when a guest arrived, they would... The, usually it was the lowest servant who would washed, wash the guest's feet. But there was no provision to wash Jesus' feet. But then this woman, she probably saw what had, what had happened, how the Jesus' feet were not washed. And with her tears, she washed them. With her hair, she wiped them. Simon did not give Jesus a kiss of peace on the cheek. But this woman, she kept, you know, kissing his feet. And... Simon, he did not anoint Jesus' head with oil, but this woman, she anointed his feet with this beautiful oil, this beautiful fragrance. And then Jesus said, her sins, which are, which are many, verse 47, are forgiven, for she loved much. She loved much. And so often those who have realized that the pit they were in before the Lord saved them, often, you know, there's a, they are passionately in love with Jesus. And Jesus spoke to her in verse 15, 50, in the, the last verse of that chapter. And he said to the woman, thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. Now, a number of times Jesus said to people, you know, your faith has made you whole. But really, it's not, it was not the woman's faith. It's not our faith. I mean, faith is, the Bible says that faith is a gift for God. is a gift from God. We have nothing but what the Lord gives. 
And, I mean, the Lord had given her that faith. And so he was able to say to her, you know, thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. And, you know, divine faith, faith from the Lord, causes our hearts to have assurance that we are pardoned, we are loved, we are accepted. And this woman's encounter with, with Jesus is such a, uh, such a beautiful picture of worship, you know, pouring out her heart to God in love, appreciation, and adoration. Indeed, loving God, you know, with all her heart, with all her mind, with all her soul, with all her strength. And, you know, God is wanting to deepen our worship, deepen our worship. And individually, individually, I encourage you, I encourage you, you know, to have times of worship, just, you know, daily, just where you can minister unto the Lord, where, you know, you can sing unto the Lord, have a worship song, and begin to sing that to the Lord, and begin to sing in other tongues, sing in the Spirit, and to, and to worship Him. And in your, your, your own, own times with the Lord, you know, seek to, to love him, to worship him. And, you know, worship, it brings us into the presence of the Lord. And it creates an atmosphere for the Lord to come. And the Lord to come, you know, in our midst. And I want to encourage you too, when we come together, when we come together like, like this, I mean... We want to, you know, some people are participators. Some people, they just stand or they just sit there. But let us all, by the grace of God, ask, ask the Lord to help us, you know, individually when we're worshipping the Lord at home or some other place, and then collectively when we come together, that we'll be those who participate. We'll be those, you know, we'll just... Focus our eyes upon him, to seek by the grace of God, to, you know, cut out those distractions and minister to him and sing to him and to sing in tongues and to sing out loud and to lift our hands and, and, and to touch the Lord and ask the Lord that God will, God will, if we all together collectively, you know, seek to, seek to, you know, enter into worship. I'm sure it'll make a, make a huge difference and, 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 and help taking us on to, to higher heights and higher levels in God where the presence of God is increasing and increasing and increasing. You know, there's tremendous power in worship. Tremendous power in worship. Incredible power in worship. And in 1 Samuel chapter 5, it speaks there when the Ark of the Covenant, and we know that the Ark was in the Holy of Holies, and the Ark had been in the city of Shiloh for many years, maybe several hundred years. From the, shortly after they came into the Promised Land, then they, they were in Gilgal, and the Ark was there, and then it was transferred up into Shiloh. And in the Holy of Holies of the... The, the, the tabernacle of Moses, the ark was there. It represented, you know, God's presence, God's power, God's glory, God's presence. But then the children of Israel, they'd backslidden. They'd turned away from God. And then they thought that 
and there was a battle with the Philistines. And then they thought if they just get the ark, you know, God's going to bless them. God's going to give them victory. And, but that's not going to happen because God wants repentance. God wants a change. There must be a change of lifestyle. You can't just get some outward ob object. And so in the battle, you know, the, the Philistines won the battle and God allowed them to win the battle. And the Philistines, they captured that ark. The Ark of the Covenant was captured and it was taken from Shiloh in Israel. It was taken from there into the land of the Philistines, into one of the Philistine cities called Ashdod. And what they did, it tells us in verse 1, 1 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 1. And the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. Ashdod's one of the main cities of the Philistines. And when the Philistines took the Ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon. That was the main, the main Philistine idol. And they set it up. They set it up by Dagon. In other words, they set up, they took the Ark of the Covenant and they took it into the temple of Dagon and they, they set it up there by Dagon, by Dagon. And Dagon was the chief god of the, of the, Philist, of the Philistines and Dagon was thought to control the weather and the fertility of the land. And Philistia was an important grain-producing region. And the work of Dagon was, and the, the worship of Dagon was thought to, if, if they worshipped Dagon, then they thought they would get prosperity, they would get good crops, they would have success. And, but anyway, what they did is they put the ark in this temple of, of Dagon, and then the, the next morning, verse 3, and when they of Ashtod, when they rose up early on the next morning, on the morrow, Behold, Dagon, that's the Philistines' God, had come crashing down, was fallen upon his face to the earth in front of the ark, right in front of the ark of God. And so in front of the ark, Dagon could not stand. In front of the ark, Dagon came crashing down. And so when the men realized what had happened, then they put the ark of Dagon up again and they put him you know, back in his, his correct place. And then the next day, in verse 4, and when they arose early on the morrow morning, that's the following day, behold, Dagon again had become crashing down on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And this time, the second time, not only did Dagon come crashing down, but the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left. Just the torso was left to him. So the Philistines' god, Dagon, it could not stand before the presence of God. And that ark, it represents worship. That ark represents the presence of God. And so we see in this account, in the book of Samuel, we see the tremendous power of worship because we could liken the Ark of the Covenant you know, to the presence of God. That happens when we worship. 
And so there's a tremendous power in worship, in breaking the power of, of idolatry, in breaking the power of satanic spirits, of breaking the power of principalities and powers. And as we worship God in the beauty of holiness, and as God takes us to, you know, as our worship is pure and holy, and we worship him from the depths of our heart, from our whole being, you know, poured out to God. You know, there's a tremendous release and tremendous power in pulling down the strongholds of the enemy. As we worship God in the beauty of holiness, holiness, even satanic principalities, satanic powers of darkness, they will be weakened. And then in God's time, they'll be broken. And as the powers of darkness and the veil you know, over cities and over nations, as that is broken, that releases revival. It prepares the way for revival and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You know, the worship is so powerful that Satan realizes that. The devil realizes that. The devil, he was, he was, he was Lucifer. He, he wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted worship. He was called, before he fell, Lucifer, the bright and the shining one. He seeks worship. And he came, one of the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness, the last one. Satan came to Jesus, tempting him and offering all the, all the kingdoms of the, this world. And he was the prince of the world at that time. If Jesus would fall down and worship him. We know Jesus replied in the next verse, Matthew 4, verse 10. Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And as we worship God, you know, spiritual power is released, which can break the power of the enemy. And, you know, worship is incredibly powerful. And the Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And if the musicians could come now, you know, let us pray, let us pray that, you know, the Lord will come and the Lord will just take us on, take us on to new levels, new levels of worship in our personal lives and take us on to new levels of worship. You know, here, especially in our Sunday morning services, that, you know, God would come, the presence of God would come. When we walk in that door, when we, whatever door we come in, when we, when we come in, and when even when, when, when visitors come in, they would, they would just sense something. There'd just be, a, there'd be an aura, there'd be a presence that be, you know, God is here. God is in the midst. The presence of God is here. The living God is here. And so let us make it a real prayer. Let us cry out to God. You know, we don't want to just listen to a message and, oh, well, another message. No. How can we, how can we apply it to our lives? How can we? God wants each one of you to be worshippers, to be worshippers. 
You know, King David, he was a worshipper. And because he was a worshipper, he was a man after God's own heart. And if we, want to, if we want to be a woman after God's own heart, a man after God's own heart, a young person after God's own heart, you know, we want to be worshippers and to, and to learn to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So let's stand, shall we, as Pastor Stephen comes now and just leads us in a, in a, in a, a worship song under the Lord.